All right, so our lesson for this morning is profitable speech. Our text is James chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, which read as follows. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. God bless the reading of his word, and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, I thank you very much for coming to hear the message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, last week, I recounted my personal intellectual journey to the understanding that divorce was outside of the will of God. And one of the salient points that I tried to make had to do with my personal sinfulness in the manner. And I've tried to stress throughout this series in the book of James that we ought not have pride in our suppositions that we are good Christians, but that we should recognize that we are actually sinners and that our eternal security is not based upon our good works, but upon the fact that God has given us the grace gift of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let me reiterate the declaration of universal sinfulness of man and our opportunity for salvation through the gracious saving gift of God found in Romans chapter 3, verses 10, 23, and chapter 6, verse 23, which says, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But although the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now our acknowledgement of our personal shortcomings is foundational to our acceptance of the grace gift of God. We need to avoid the tendency that Christians have to get the big head, meaning an inflated ego, and to look down on others that are still living life in the way that we formerly lived before we came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, it is interesting that the lifestyle of the average unsaved person is not necessarily any worse than that of the average Christian. I cite the fact that the percentage of divorced people identifying themselves as Christians was only one percentage point less than all of the divorced people not identifying themselves as Christians in a recent survey. Unsaved people do a large percentage of the sin that is done in the world, 
but not necessarily a larger percentage than Christians. And if you think that I'm wrong, just spend some time looking into the history of scandals in the church and into sin and cruelty done in the name of Christianity, and you will find that neither joining the Christian band nor accepting the call to ministry makes a person immune to sin. So James began this third chapter of his epistle with a warning. James chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 tells us, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many things. Now, Jesus gives the background for this verse in his teaching in Matthew chapter 23, verse 1 through 12, in which the Bible says, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greeting in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But who he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So now the best that any person in the role of a Bible teacher can do is to give accurate instruction in that which the Bible says, endeavor to live a good Christian life as an example to others, and then always be ready to acknowledge his personal shortcomings and to repent of them, doing his best to keep himself off of the pedestal. And let me be the first to acknowledge that today, the real teacher here is Jesus Christ, and I'm just trying to emulate his example by quoting the relevant portion of that which Jesus said and interpreting his word as he would were he here. So now we do the unsaved and those that are less experienced in Christ than we in our sphere of influence a disservice when we present ourselves as better than they rather than presenting ourselves as sinners saved by grace. And even if you have recently been successful in living a less sinful life than the person that you're trying to persuade to come to or live for Christ, you should always remember the parabolic illustration that Jesus gives us about being humble in Luke 18, chapter 18, verse 9 through 14, which says, And Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven 
but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, the tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, for an example of someone humbling himself, consider the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, having all power in heaven and earth in his hand. Jesus humbled himself to be born into the human family in the normal way that people are born. The Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, came to earth as a human child, taking on the obligation to be subject to human parents. Now, Luke chapter 2 tells us that when Jesus was 12 years old, he traveled to the Passover feast in Jerusalem with his parents and his other human relatives. Once there, Jesus left the group and went to the temple for a discussion with those who were in charge. Jesus did not return home with his parents, but remained in the temple, questioning and teaching the most learned in Israel. Luke chapter 22, verse 46 and 47 records, Now so it was that after three days they found Jesus in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard Jesus were astonished at his understanding and answers. So now the boy Jesus, teaching in the temple, was a singularly impressive individual. His parents, however, came to retrieve him from this extraordinary intellectual exhibition in the temple to return him to life as a boy in Galilee. Now, what was the reaction of the one who was fully God, with all power in his hand and all wisdom upon his lips, to this denigration of his power and intellect as he was asked to return to the role of a child? Luke chapter 2, verse 51 and 52 records, Then Jesus went down with his parents and came to Nazareth, and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So Jesus humbled himself, not just to obey God, but also to obey his earthly mother and father, two simple country people that could not hold a candle to his mental and spiritual ability. Of course, all pre-teenage and teenage children think that they are smarter and more knowledgeable than their parents. But unlike most adolescents, Jesus Christ actually was smarter and more knowledgeable than his parents. That fact notwithstanding, the Bible teaches us that Jesus humbled himself. So if the Lord Jesus Christ, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace could submit to his two flawed sinful human parents, how can we, hell-bound sinners, saved from our fate only by the grace of God, exalt ourselves over anyone? It is an interesting question about which to think, isn't it? Remember that the next time you find yourself tempted to get on your high horse, because as our text tells us in James chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment for we all stumble in many things. So the scripture teaches that we should be careful about our propensity to manifest our sinful nature in our speech. As James chapter 3, verse 2 through 4 reads, If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, 
We put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. So our speech is our presentation to the outside world. The content of our conversation is that that distinguishes us from those who do not know the Lord. Now, it was a great blessing to watch the victory celebration on Super Bowl Sunday this year. As the game came down to the last few minutes and it became clear that Indianapolis was going to win, Tony Dungy prepared himself to accept his first Super Bowl trophy as a coach. Now, on the podium, the owner of the Indianapolis Colts spoke before Tony and said that he hired Tony as soon as he could after Tony's dismissal from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers because of Tony's reputation of being a successful coach with a great deal of class. And then as Tony spoke on the podium after the owner, he credited all that he had done to his relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't think that I've ever watched a championship speech, not even in a church league, in which the Lord was given more glory and honor for the victory and for the demeanor of this year's champions of the NFL. Tony acknowledged that which the press wanted to dwell on, that being that he was the first African-American coach to win the Super Bowl, but he deflected that conversation as quickly as he gracefully could and returned to the subject of relationships of team management, the coaching staff, and the players on the team, giving credit for his leadership to the Lord Jesus Christ. There were also some interesting things said about Tony's personal demeanor. Some of them related the fact that in the first team meeting, he talked to the team in a normal tone of voice, telling the players, get used to listening, listening to me talk like this, because this is as loudly as you will ever hear me speak. Several of the players acknowledge, interviewed acknowledged that Tony never raised his voice at them, but coached by speaking to them as one civilized adult would talk to another in a normal tone of voice with reasonableness and dignity. And when the general manager of the team was asked about Tony, he made the interesting comment that unlike the other coaches with which he had been affiliated, Tony did not use profanity. He said, I've only heard Tony say one swear word, and that was when we were discussing his plans to appear on the various sports talk shows. Tony agreed to participate on the best damn talk shows, sports show, period, which is the sports talk show on the Fox Network. I said to Tony, you know, Tony, that's the only time I've ever heard you use a curse word. Tony replied, and I'll never do it again. So now Tony Dungy on Super Bowl Sunday followed the commandment that God gave in Colossians chapter 4 through 6 and prayed that which David prayed in Psalms 19 and 14, which says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each word, each one, and let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. There's an interesting truth that I learned in Chicago, Illinois, as I was growing up, that violent language leads to violent action. We used to play a game with what some of you may be familiar called playing the dozens. Now, the objective of this game was to say the most negative, negatively provocative and vulgar things that we could about someone else's family. The game generally lasted until somebody said something really bad about someone else's mother. 
And that was fair game to talk about someone's father, brother, sister, uncle, aunt, cousin, and grandparent. But if you happen to touch on the subject of someone's mother, there was a good chance that a fight would break out. And I learned that you should always give people a way to back down from confrontation. The more efficiently that you talk someone into a corner, the more violently that they will come out of the corner. A friend of mine and I received an ocular demonstration of this lesson in the field, which is now the campus of Chicago State University, but was just a field surrounded with a wooden fence when I was growing up. My friend owned a BB gun, and one day we went through the fence into the field to see what he could shoot. My friend shot at a large rat and missed, and the two of us chased the rat as he ran away. We caught up with him as he ran into a corner of the fence, and we found ourselves able to impede the rat's escape. And I found out that day that it is not a good plan to corner a wild rat unless your plan is to go all the way to the final solution. Because when the rat decides that he has no way to escape, he is not going down without a fight, and I mean a fight to the finish. Now, people are more dangerous than rats in that they do not have to be physically cornered to reach for the final solution. We corner one another with harsh language and threats, and as the news reports often tell us, people are killing one another for things that we would not have considered particularly serious in my day. I doubt that it would be too safe to go on the streets now and say some of the things that we used to say to one another when I was a kid. And God instructs us not to speak in the ways that my friends and I used to speak in Psalm 37, verse 11 through 17, which says, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. Now, of course, Lying on people did not start with me and my friends. The lies of the religious leaders against Jesus Christ are among the documented reasons that they were not granted repentance after his resurrection. One such episode is recorded starting in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 through 24, which says, Then one was brought to Jesus, who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now the Pharisees were so irrationally prejudiced against Jesus Christ that they made the totally illogical assertion that Jesus was a devil that cast out the devil. Jesus responded with the argument, that when you say something bad about someone, your negative assertion should at least make sense. Of course, the devil could voluntarily quit possessing someone, but why would he cast himself out? It doesn't make sense, and Jesus points it out in Matthew chapter 12, verse 25 through 28, which says, but Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation.'" 
and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So, curing people of demon possession is not the purview of Satan. Releasing people from the clutches of the devil is the work of the kingdom of God. Every week, we ask God, not the devil, for the blessing of being in our right mind, and we study the Holy Scripture, not some book of the devil, to learn the things of God and protect our minds from being misled by the evil one. Combating Satan is the work of the Spirit of God that is sent to defend us, and Jesus, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 31 through 37, tells the religious leaders that their illogical assertion to ascribe evil to the Spirit of God will lead to their condemnations. The Bible says, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree bad and his fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So it is of the utmost importance, not just for our witness, but as evidence that we have received eternal life, that we speak graciously and that our speech is seasoned with salt, that we keep our tongues from evil and deceit, that we speak in ways that pursue goodness and peace, and that we speak in ways that glorify God, not blaspheme him. I have also learned that I should temper my speech to other people because I actually have no control over that which other people do. I recognize that other people have the right to make their own decisions and learn from their own mistakes, even as I have. And if someone asks me to give them advice, I recognize that my advice is not binding on the person that asked for it. Now, while I know how my journey led me to the Lord, I have to give other people to whom I speak space to get to the Lord in their own way. Yes, I would prefer that everyone be saved immediately after hearing my voice, but I happen to know that it took me 27 years to come to a saving knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ, and it is likely that everyone will complete the turn into salvation on their own timetable, as some people are coming to the Lord by a circuitous route. My job is not to judge your journey, but to give advice by pointing to biblical references that fit your situation in the sure knowledge that the word of God is more accurate and more likely to draw you into the kingdom than my personal opinion of what you are doing. So now my job 
is to find something praiseworthy in everyone to whom I speak and then to develop a degree of mutual admiration with them that will allow them to listen non-defensively as I present the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have to avoid condemning their behavior, recognizing that as we are all sinners, I have no power to condemn. Of course, neither do I condone sinful behavior, but I remove my judgment entirely so that I am not the focus of the discussion, but the focus of my discussion is the teaching of the Bible, not on my opinion of the behavior of others. So I try to avoid having hurt feelings if the person rejects my advice, and I also try to avoid a personal investment in the outcome of this situation because the advice that I am giving them is not mine, but that which I received from the Lord. I do my best to emulate the thinking of Jesus in the matter as he instructed his disciples in John chapter 5, verse 30, which says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And it is certainly true that I can of myself do nothing. There's nothing that I can do for or about your situation or that of anyone else except to warn you about that which God has promised. When my judgment of your case is righteous, it is because I am telling you the will of God for your life rather than trying to get you to do what I want you to do. Now, Jesus warned Judas about the consequences of his planned betrayal in Matthew chapter 26, verse 24. The Bible says, Jesus said, The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Jesus warned the other disciples that they would deny him in Matthew 26, verse 31 through 35. The Bible says, Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Now, neither Judas nor the other disciples were able to avoid sin surrounding Jesus's arrest. Judas was eternally lost and all the other disciples failed Jesus, although they were saved by his grace. And I doubt that Jesus loved the other disciples more than Judas because he loves us all and gave his life for all of us. But it happens to be a fact that God gives us all free will. And then he puts us at the crossroads of the choice of godliness or the choice of evil. And then allows us to reap the benefits or consequences of our own choice as Judas did when he hanged himself. Now, I started preparing my son for manhood at his eighth birthday party. I called him away from the friends with whom he was playing and informed him that he had 10 more years to live in our house. He was nonplussed at this information as he did not understand its context, and I did not explain it at the time, as my plan was to just plant a seed in his mind. 
every year after that on his birthday, I reminded him of how much time he had to go. And having had this knowledge for 10 years, when he reached his 18th birthday, he was ready to move into the next phase of his life. And since he began college after turning 18 and graduating from high school, he has not made my house his primary domicile, and I have not tried to regulate his behavior as I did when he was a child. I have tried to pattern our relationship after that of Jesus and his disciples. We have a relationship in which I give advice, and then he decides whether or not my advice will fit into his program because he is living his own life. When my part in our relationship has been successful, it is because, in my opinion, I have avoided becoming overtly invested in seeing him take my advice, recognizing the reality that whether or not he sees fit to take my advice, I do not actually have the knowledge of the future required to tell anyone with absolute certainty whether or not their own plans are going to succeed. So James tells us in, in uh, James chapter 3, verse 2, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. So the only competent advice that I can give anyone about life is based upon my experience with and understanding of the content of the scripture. I know that the teaching of the scripture is relevant to every situation, and I, if I can constrain myself to only give advice based upon the teaching of the scripture, I will be doing this service to which God has called me. So if we can restrict our advice to others about life, to that which the Bible tells us, and recognize the sovereign right of each individual to make up their own minds, we can avoid investing too much ego in that which we say and the advice that we give, which will have the benefit of making our arguments more reasonable to those with whom we wish to have influence and making ourselves more able to help them avoid the pitfalls through which experience has taught us. Our recognition of our own sinfulness and humility about our own journey, combined with the knowledge of the scripture and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, will make us wise counselors of those with whom we come into contact and will allow the Lord to use us in the further extension of the great work of the building the kingdom of God. So let us not stumble in word, but use our tongues to teach that which God teaches. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we ask you this morning that you would help us to govern our tongues, that, we might, that our speech might always be graceful, that it might be seasoned well, that we might have a good presentation to all whom, to whom we speak, that we might give them uh, advice and influence based upon uh, that which we have learned from your word. And help us not to be overly invested in the lives of others, but help us to be a good guide as they go down their own path toward your kingdom. And we ask you, Lord, that, all, that you would bless all with whom we have influence, that they might come and stay with a saving knowledge of you. And now we thank you for these who are in the house today. We ask you that you give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank God. Let us pray. 
Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning that you've given us another opportunity to come out to the house of prayer. We thank you for those who have come, and we are praying for those who were not able to make it today. We're in prayer for Dr. Allen and his family. We're asking that you bless uh, both him, his family, and Brother Quarterman uh, as they are, and Brother Quarterman is recovering from his heart surgery. We're asking you that you continue uh, to bless him as he does well uh, in that. We're praying for Sister Allen Lloyd. We're asking that you give her a great week this week as she's celebrating her next birthday. And we ask, Lord, that you would make that a festive day. Let those uh, who are close to her uh, celebrate with her and commemorate that day. We ask you, Lord, that you uh, bless those whom she has asked us to pray for, her parents and her children and uh, her other relatives, uh, Brother Bragg as well, Brother Lori and Dwayne Curtis and Darling Sherrod, Noda Brown, and for all those with whom she is associated. Lord, you know the need in all those cases. And we're asking you today that you meet those needs according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus, and that you would give her a wonderful day this week. And we're continuing in prayer for the beards. We're asking that you bless Sister Marcia, Brother Julian, and Brother Young. We're asking you, Lord, that uh, you know the need in that situation, and we're asking that you resolve it, and that you would allow them to come through that unscathed, that you let them learn the lessons of, of, of their activities and just help them, Lord, to uh, recover from those things that they might be able uh, to be whole at the conclusion of that situation. I'm praying for my wife and I'm praying for Paul, our son, who's moving this week, uh, or support, we hope is moving this week, uh, from uh, Grand Rapids to uh, Rochester as he has taken on a new responsibility uh, in that city. And we're asking, Lord, that uh, you'd allow him to be able to uh, deal with the vicissitudes of moving, uh, get all of his possessions packed well, and we ask that you let the movers have a great trip across the state and not have any problems or accidents or breakages, and that they be able to deliver everything to his new domicile intact. We're asking you also, Lord, that you would continue to bless him as uh, he moves along on this new job. Give him uh, the wisdom that he needs uh, to fulfill the technical requirements of that job and to uh, make all the migrations that he's working on work well. Continuing in prayer for Rachel Dima's mother, for Mother Z, who is still progressing from her stroke, Brother Rodriguez and Brother Tyson, for Mother Versa and Mother Wills, we ask you, Lord, uh, that you continue to bless uh, Wendy Thompson and her father, and Linda Hannes and her mother, and her father-in-law, that you would move into all those uh, situations and move as only you can to clear up, to clear up uh, the problems that they have. And we're thanking you, Lord, that uh, Marie's mother's leg surgery was successful. We're thanking you, Lord, that she's going to be able to get back to her activities this week. We know that she has one more leg to go. And we ask you, Lord, that you continue to go with her and stand by her. Keep, anything from, keep everything from happening on the negative side that might affect her before that last blockage is, uh, is uh, fit. We just ask you, Lord, that you go with her and stand by her and all that she does. We're continuing in prayer for Rick and for Nikki Owens, for Brian. And for Sarah Roberts, for Eric and Amanda, we're asking you, Lord, that you bless all these with whom my son is acquainted. And we ask you, Lord, that you just go with them, uh, that you would regulate their minds and fix their hearts, that they might be able to do that, which is pleasing in your sight. Bless those young people, Lord, as they are, as Rick is in a rock. And we ask you that you keep him safe from the military action over there, that he might not have to participate in anything leading to death or injury. We just ask you, Lord, that you bring him back safely to us at the appointed time, all in one piece. Now, we're continuing in prayer with Brother Edwards and his family. We ask you that you bless him as 
Uh, he seems to have fractured his foot or at least uh, seriously injured. Him. And we ask you, Lord, that you'd allow him to get around today and that the doctor would give him good news tomorrow when he goes to see him and that you would uh, make him able to uh, continue to do those things uh, that he so much enjoys doing. We're also in prayer for Sister Carruthers and Sister Alice Mae Nichols and Sister Lynn Goodson, all of whom he has asked us to pray for and have medical conditions. And we know that you're a doctor that's never lost a patient, so we ask you to meet that need according to your riches in Christ Jesus. We're continuing in prayer for the Fullers over across the street for uh, Penny Rajala, who was uh, here visiting with us one week and is doing well. And uh, we're just asking you that her surgery would, uh, that her radiation treatment would continue uh, to, to uh, improve her condition. We're praying for those whom Brother Lee is concerned about, for his son Darius, who's traveling across the eastern part of the country. We're asking you, Lord, that you'd also bless uh, the Grimmelot family and the Kernicke family, for Joseph Miller and Tyrone Davis, for Sister Teddy and Brother Pillow, uh, for the Steigen family and the Smithwick family, and for Frida Durham. We're asking you, Lord, that you look looking at all those situations and be a blessing to them. Now, Lord, we're praying for Brother McClure as he is traveling up and down the dangerous highway this week, uh, returning home from a funeral service in Arkansas. We ask you that you give comfort to the bereaved, uh, him and uh, Sister, Sister Gwen as well, and all that are in the family down there. And we ask, Lord, that you uh, fix the weather as he travels back through it, that he might be able to make his way safely back uh, to the appointed place at the appointed time. And we're asking that you give Sister McClure traveling mercies as she's on her way later this week to uh, North Carolina. And we ask you, Lord, that you would allow her to enjoy that graduation of the young man that's going into the special forces. And as he's taking on a dangerous assignment being in that group, we're asking that you put your hedge of protection around him uh, in whatever post he is given, that you keep him safe from all hurt, harm, and danger and allow him uh, to do his duty with honor and, and to return from his duty in one piece that all may be well with him. And we ask you, Lord, that you would also bring Sister McClure back uh, from that situation as well. Praying for Thelma Claiborne and for uh, Brother Hokewater. And we're asking you, Lord, that Mother McClure will still be able to enjoy her stay in Phoenix for the winter. Praying for Mike Kraft and Veronica Oldie. And we ask you, Lord, that you would go with J.J. and Janelle as they are working on their academics. Give them that mind that they need that they might be able to absorb the information and have, have it prepared when the teacher asks them for it. Continuing in prayer for the Winstons, for Sister Winston and for Brother Winston and his back, and for Donna Powell and Lynn Pointer, whom they have asked us to pray for. And we ask you that you'd bless in their situations and allow them uh, to enjoy these days, even though they are coming through physical ailments, or physical injuries. But we ask you that you would allow those bones and sinews and tendons to uh, knit properly and uh, give them full function of those limbs as well. Now I'm praying for Dad, for Marvin, for Uncle Jeb, and for all my cousins down in Gary, Indiana, and for Sister Frazier, Brother Bowie, who's just had a kidney transplant. We're asking you to continue to bless him. Brother McGill, who's doing well at the cleaners, for Aunt Naomi. We ask you that you would go with her and stand by her as well. Uh, for the Northerns in Houston, Texas, for the Perkins in Lafayette, Louisiana, as they're raising their young families. We ask you that you give them that which they require. Uh, that you give them not just uh, the, the uh, financial wherewithal to do so, but that you would uh, help them in their relationship situations, that, uh, that their children might be raised in the way that they should go so that when they get old, they will not depart from it. Now we're continuing praying for Brother Russell in White Hills, for Chaplain Sifford over in Iraq, 
We thank you, Lord, that Sister Dolores Burley was able to go to Montana and come back and have a great experience and make it back home safely. Continue to run the television station and put our programs on the air. We thank you for that. Continuing prayer for Sister Flanagan and uh, for Sister uh, Catherine Patton and for Sister Sabrina Powell, all of whom have been uh, visit have visited us and have left, left us with their prayer requests. And we ask the Lord that you remember them even as we do and meet their needs. Now, Lord, we pray for the television station, for the Forgotten Man Ministry, for our armed forces over here and abroad, uh, for the young men and women in this neighborhood, and for the salvation of our family and friends. And we just ask you, Lord, that you bless this place that you've given us and allow us to continue to keep it running. And we thank you for the things that you've given us to make the word plain and help us to be plain and simple that we might be able uh, to spread the word in the way that it should go. We thank you for the other ministries that are uh, taking our message forward, and we ask you to continue to bless them. And now, Lord, I pray for my wife, who's the love of my life. I ask you that you go with her and stand by her in all that she does this week. Allow her, to, allow her to have a good time at work and that she might be able to lead those that she is leading in the way that they should go as well. Uh, give her the administrative uh, uh, force that she needs to take care of all the problems that they have over there. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross arising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the name of wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank God. Biblical record records the many memorable speeches and teachings of Jesus Christ. His speech was always seasoned with salt, gracious, and he said those things which were most applicable to the ones that he, to whom he was talking. And we just want to emulate his example as we remember the way that he spoke. And as we go down from this place, let us speak those words that others will find both memorable and beneficial. That our speech be seasoned with salt and beneficial to those who hear it. So let us remember his example and emulate it as we go down from this place. And let us remember him now as we eat and drink together. And now may the love of God, the grace of Jesus Christ, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit rest with the Bible that's now henceforth and forevermore. Let every heart say, Amen.